Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, now if you would please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. We're going to be looking this evening at verses 19 through 23. So just the tail end of Deuteronomy 15. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. All the first all the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it, and as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. O Lord, it is magnificent to think of all of the ways in which the Old Testament speaks forth and teaches on the atonement that has been accomplished in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we think of all of the many ways, the different aspects that are emphasized, the different features of it that are promoted and taught, Lord, we are amazed that we have such a full atonement, that all of it was accomplished with the single act of atonement through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, even as we think this evening just about one part of this atonement, Lord, may it be that you would raise our hearts to you to see how glorious it really was, the thing that happened on the cross that day so many years ago, where we were saved from our sins, where we were given life even in the death of your Son. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it is often said that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. They point to the sacrifice that he himself would make. And of course, this is true. It's true if we look at the early parts of Leviticus where each of the different kinds of sacrifices are described. There are slight differences in the way in which each of them are described. And all of them point to a different aspect of what it meant that the Lord Jesus Christ would die to save his people's sins. And what is really amazing is, as I mentioned in the prayer, that all of these various sacrifices that were done at different times and in different ways with different animals and with different emphases, all of them show forth something else that's different about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why there needed to be so many different kinds of sacrifices is because of the beautiful, multifaceted nature of the atonement that would be accomplished by the Messiah himself. Everything was pointing to the one sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ was made. 
has made. Now, I've sometimes used this, this analogy before, this illustration with other things that the scriptures speak of, but I think it really is appropriate here that really the, the doctrine of the atonement in this way, as we think of all the different kinds of things that the Old Testament speaks to in terms of the different sacrifices, it is very much like a diamond that is just held up in the light and slowly turned so that all of the different faces of the diamond reflect the light in different, way, in, in different ways. And this is really what we are doing here this evening. We're looking at just simply one aspect of this, the way in which the law of the firstborn, as it's been given uh, in the Pentateuch, and more particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. Everything, everything that we've been given in terms of sacrifice in the Old Testament was meant to teach us what we are to believe about the coming of the Messiah, and how we are to worship him. And remember where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. We're looking at, continuing to look at the fourth commandment. Moses is continuing to speak of things that need to happen regularly, and this is one of them. Uh, every year at a set time, probably related to the tithe year, the the, the, uh, the the tithe, which also was collected once a year, as we saw at the end of Deuteronomy 14. Once a year, you would not only need to bring the tithe, but you would also need to bring the, the firstborn of all your flock. The first one would need to be brought in fulfillment of this particular law. And the reason this was important is because, as we'll see, everything in the Old Testament sacrifices not only point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also point backwards first to the Passover. Everything related to uh, this firstborn law, we'll see, is related to the Passover, was meant to teach the people and to be a remembrance for the people of the kind of redemption that the people of God received when they were redeemed from the hand of Pharaoh. And of course, every part of that redemption was meant to point forward to what the Lord Jesus Christ would do on the cross so many years later. And even just as a, a helpful hint, as you are reading through your the, the Bible and you're trying to think through, you know, how is it that the people of God could have known that uh, this or that passage was, was meant to point forward beyond simply uh, the words that were written? One of the reasons that you can know that is because everything in Old Testament worship, as we'll see, and as has hopefully been clear all the way through this, this uh sermon series through Deuteronomy, everything with regard to worship does point back to the Exodus. Everything was meant to teach them about this great redemption. And everything in that Exodus was always meant to point forward to something greater. And that is the way in which ultimately everything in the Pentateuch does speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to worship God without having the Exodus in your mind in the Old Testament, you would be sinning. Everything Everything points to the Exodus. We even saw this last week as we looked at the law of the, the debt cancellation. It's meant to teach you and to, to remind you that what God did when he brought you out of Egypt was he canceled your debt. He freed you from slavery. He did this, and, and even then the way in which you treat others is to be a reflection and a constant remembrance of this great redemption that you have. And all of it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we see here, particularly with regard to the law of the firstborn, and we're going to look at this by actually going back to a number of other passages so we can get a, a kind of whole view of all of the laws that the Pentateuch gave with regard to the law of the firstborn. But what we see particularly here is that redemption depends upon the death of a firstborn, the death of a firstborn who is unblemished, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the firstborn giving up his life, 
it also then grants the status of firstborn to those who receive that redemption. That the firstborn is given such that then you could be called a firstborn son of God. And this is, even in the theology of the Old Testament, what the firstborn law was meant to, what was meant to, to, to characterize and what it was meant to teach. You are to remember, you are to continually sacrifice year by year all of your firstborn that you might remember that it has to be the death of a firstborn that would be done on your behalf to grant you the right of firstborn status before God. And so we'll look at this passage under three headings. As I mentioned, we're actually going to, going to be going to a number of different places uh, in the Pentateuch. And then once we get a, a whole view of the law of the firstborn, then we're going to uh, look at the way in which Christ has fulfilled this. So first we'll look at you know, the, 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 the teaching of the firstborn law all throughout the Pentateuch. Then we'll look at the way in which Christ fulfills it, particularly then in two ways. The way in which he filled it, fulfilled it on the cross and the way in which it will be fulfilled on the last day when he returns and uh, brings in the full consummation and perfection of all things. So there'll be those three things. The law of the firstborn in the Israelite context, the law of the firstborn in the context of Christ's redemption, and the law of the firstborn in the context of the consummation of all things. Now, the first and very most important probably uh, passage to go to to understand the significance of this law of the firstborn is Exodus chapter 13 particularly verses 11 through 16. And the reason why this is important is because Exodus 13, if you remember, comes right at the end, right after, of course, Exodus 12, which is the 10th plague, the actual carrying out of it. It's the actual slaughter of the firstborn, the the, 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 the lamb that was meant to be to save the firstborn. So it saves the firstborn of all the Israelites and then all of the firstborn of all the Egyptians die. That's what happens in Exodus chapter 12. Now, the lamb doesn't necessarily have to be the firstborn, but that was that it was meant to save the firstborn. However, then in the context, in the context of this very act of redemption that came through the Passover, the, the, the death of the lamb saving the firstborn, we have in Exodus chapter 13, verse, verses, from verses 11 to 16, an explicit teaching that links the, the consecration of the firstborn and the, the, the way in which God saved the firstborn from death, the Israelites, to the, this law of the firstborn that would then be instituted from this point. The idea here is that with the salvation of all of the firstborn of Israel, because the lamb died in the place of the firstborn Israelite, that's the idea, uh, the, the angel of death would have come and killed the firstborn of every Israelite. And yet the lamb died in the place of that firstborn. And what Moses teaches in Exodus 13 then is that because there was a sacrifice that was offered in the place of the firstborn, all of the firstborn of everything belongs to me. All of the firstborn of all people, all of the firstborn of all animals belongs to me. And you are also then to sacrifice all of the firstborn animals that, that opens the womb, every single one, you are to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and it, this is to be a reminder of the way in which the firstborn were redeemed from Pharaoh on the night of the Passover. So already we have this great link between the this law of the firstborn, that all firstborn are going to be consecrated to the Lord God, and it is specifically linked to the way in which the firstborn of all the Israelites had been saved on that great day of redemption. So we see here immediately that there is this immediately very strong connection with the Passover and with the redemption that would come 
that did in fact come uh, at that time when the when the lamb was slain, when the lamb was slain and put on the doorpost. Now, the reason this is then significant is because actually all throughout the Exodus story, there is this emphasis on the status of the people of God as being the firstborn sons of God. And we see this even not just because the climactic plague is the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians and the salvation of the firstborn of all the Israelites, but even at the very beginning of the story, before any of the plagues are actually uh, put upon the Egyptians, any of the signs and wonders before any of those are done, there is this warning that, that God commands Moses to give to Pharaoh. You need to let my people Israel go. He says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, you need to let my people go because they are my firstborn son. And if you do not let them go, I will kill your firstborn son. That is the immediate threat. So all of the story is based on the people of God as a whole being the firstborn sons of God and this threat being made to Pharaoh. If you do not do this, then your firstborn son will die. There's even other ways in which the idea of uh, firstborn sons are emphasized in the text. You remember that even in Exodus 1 and 2, even in the context of, of Moses' birth, he was going to be be put to death as a son of an Israelite because the Pharaoh at that time was putting to death all the male children in Israel. And so there was this, this slaughter of children, of male children, uh, that happened at the beginning of the story, which foreshadows what God is going to do to the Egyptians, that he was actually then going to... Uh, get revenge on the the harm that was done to his people by judging Pharaoh and destroying their firstborn. And the point then of that redemption in Exodus chapter 12 is that all of God's people now are redeemed and their status is vindicated as the firstborn of God. The thing that, that God had told Pharaoh at the very beginning, Israel is my firstborn son. Now they have the redemption that confirms that status for them. And that is then uh, the reason why this firstborn law uh, is so important. It was to be a remembrance to the people of God that they are the firstborn sons of God and that everything then that is a firstborn belongs to God because, because he has redeemed them. He has redeemed the redemption grants the right of firstborn status whereby then you belong to God as a firstborn. And all of these firstborn laws are meant are meant to teach this very thing. Now, the next law, the next firstborn law, is in Exodus chapter 22, verses 29 and 30. And the main point there, and this would have been a law that would have been in place all the way up until the entrance of the people of God into the promised land. So the laws are slightly different. The the laws uh, in Deuteronomy are tweaked so as to account for the new situation of being in the promised land. So, and this is why, as I as we've been uh, looking, beginning with Deuteronomy 12, there is this great emphasis on the place that God will choose to set his name. And that becomes the main focus of all the theology and all the sacrifices. Once they come into the land and they have this rest, then everything is going to be re- revolve around that. But before that, there were other laws that regulated uh, this law of the firstborn. And here then, in Exodus chapter 22, verses 29 and 30, the main thing that is emphasized is that on the eighth day, on the eighth day, that is when the animal that's a firstborn is to be sacrificed. And here then we have another connection then with something else that we see in Old Testament law, and that is that is circumcision. Circumcision was also an eighth day thing whereby through cutting, there would be uh, a, the, the male child would be dedicated to God. He would be consecrated to God. He would actually become gods. And so then we have this, 
this uh, relationship between these two things. We, we have a remembrance of uh, the importance of uh, belonging to God by sacrifice. Circumcision points to the same reality. You belong to God through the redemption that he himself would provide for you. And the law of the firstborn is meant to explain that further, that there is to be, through the, the death of the firstborn, there is to be this redemption that you would have, whereby you yourself would have this firstborn status. Now, the, now in Numbers, we have some more things that are said about this firstborn law. Numbers 3, verse 13, we, we read that God took all of the Levites in the place of the firstborn, so the idea is that there was the, the counting of all the firstborn that were in Israel at that time, and then that number was similar to the, to, to the Levites. And so God took the Levites instead of all the firstborn of Israel. The firstborn of Israel belonged to him because he had redeemed them through the, uh, through the blood of the Lamb. But here then, ev- all Levitical service then points to the exact same reality. Firstborn status that has been granted by God himself through redemption. Everything that the Levites do in Numbers then is meant to be a reminder of this firstborn status that you have only through the redemption that God himself provides. And then those who have this special status of firstborn, which ultimately ultimately belongs to all the people, but there was a group within the, the, the larger group, so to speak, that showed forth this reality in a special way as a, as a, a kind of teaching point, so to speak. There, th- these people who, ha- who had this particular uh, benefit and even a subset of that group, which was the priests, had a special relationship to the law of the firstborn, such that then the priests, we see in Numbers 18, in Numbers 18, the priests had a special rights to partake of uh, this uh, firstborn sacrifice. So they would actually be sustained physically by this firstborn sacrifice. Now, that's just a brief overview of the theology uh, in that we find in the Pentateuch for the law of the firstborn. It's really in that context then that we have this particular law at the end of Deuteronomy 15, where we have, again, the the main reason it's given here is because now the people of God are on the edge of the promised land. They're going to go into the promised land. And at some point when God gives them rest, there will be a new place where God will set his name. And that becomes now the the central aspect of this firstborn law. All the, the firstborn law must now conform to this idea of a, a place of worship where God will set his name. And that's really uh, the point of Deuteronomy 15, verses 19 through 23. Now, a couple of of important things then. Uh, One, it will no longer be required that the people of God sacrifice the animal on the eighth day of its life. This would really be impossible to have done uh, if every single time one of your animals give birth and you had to make a trip to Jerusalem. Uh, They didn't know where the place was going to be at that point, but it, of course, ended up being Jerusalem. And if you were to have to do that every single time an animal was born, it would really not be possible to do it. One, it would be very difficult even to get there by the eighth day um, to, you know, to even uh, logistically figure out how to land in, in Jerusalem on the eighth day uh, of the animal being born. And so there is a, a difference that's being put forward here, which is that once a year, anything that was a firstborn must now go to Jerusalem and be sacrificed. That's the point of Deuteronomy 15. Now, uh, this would, that would have been tied to the tithe law, as I mentioned, that we looked at in, at the end of Deuteronomy 14. Once a year, all of the firstborn would be brought to this place where God would choose to set his name. And all the theology of the firstborn will now coincide with the theology of this special place. Now, the point, the point of combining this law of the firstborn 
with the place that God has chosen to set his name is to emphasize that ultimately the end goal of this firstborn law is to grant access to the worshiper to fellowship with God. That through this sacrifice of the firstborn, the worshiper now has fellowship with God. And we even see this in in the text, the way it's emphasized. You are to bring the animal to the place that God's chosen to set his name and you are to eat of it. You are actually to partake of it uh, in the presence of the Lord. So there were some things that only the priest could partake of. As we see, particularly with the firstborn, there was a section of uh, of this, uh, a portion of the firstborn uh, law and sacrifice that went to the priest from uh, Numbers 18. But there were also some things that all of the people got to partake of. And that's because, as Moses had said in Exodus 19, all of the people are priests of God in some way. They are a kingdom of priests. And so they have, by right of that redemption and by being granted firstborn status by that redemption, all of them now have a right of access to God. And therefore, to show that forth, every year, the people of God would bring their firstborn to the place that God would choose, where God's special presence was, and they would have fellowship with God as they ate a meal in the presence of God, which was the firstborn animals that God had in fact given to him. Now, that's the idea of the of the firstborn law. You'll notice, though, in verses 21, 20, uh, excuse me, 21 through 23, that there is some exceptions. And this we don't find in the other firstborn laws that have been uh, given before Deuteronomy. That if there is some kind of defect with the animal, then you would not sacrifice it. There would be something special that you would do. You would eat it in the gate, so to speak, but you would not bring it to the place. Because it was not fit for worship, it was not fit for sacrifice, it did not adequately show forth the reality that a redemption of an unblemished firstborn was to be the basis for granting firstborn status to the people of God. That's the idea. And so because of that, if there's a blemish in the firstborn, then there would be something else that you would do. You would actually be able to eat it locally in your own gates, and there would be a a lessening of the rules. So like even... Even if you were unclean, if you were ritually unclean because of, of some kind of thing that had happened to you, uh, you would normally not be allowed to worship God in the place that God chose, but you would still be allowed to eat of this firstborn if it had a defect because there is a separation. This animal is not fit for uh, being used as a sacrifice to God. It, it doesn't fit the theology that the firstborn sacrifice that had to be offered must also be unblemished, that the redemption that grants the status of firstborn before God did not just have to be a firstborn, as Deuteronomy is saying, as Moses is teaching. It had to be the sacrifice of an unblemished firstborn. The sacrifice of an unblemished firstborn was the only way that that the people of God could receive firstborn status before God, that they could be called his sons and daughters. Now, the last thing that's said in verse 23 is that you shall not eat the blood. This is something that we see all throughout all the laws. The idea is, just as we saw with the the boiling a kid in its mother's milk, a young goat in its mother's milk, is it's an unnatural mixing of life and death. The, the, the atonement is made because the life is given up on the altar, and that's what the blood does. The, the, the life is in the blood, we are taught by Moses, and therefore uh, the blood needs to be poured out. The eating is for things that are dead, and life is related to life. So those two things can't be mixed. That's, that's the idea. And that is that pulls through every single uh, law in the Old Testament with regard to sacrifice. Now, that's the idea of the, the Pentateuch's witness to this firstborn law. How does this relate to the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Well, we are told in the New Testament, and as we see, even as, oh, uh, hopefully it's clear, even just from this description of it in the, in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, that Christ is the firstborn and the unblemished lamb who was sacrificed, whereby you could then become firstborn sons of God. That without the sacrifice of Christ as the firstborn, you could not be called a son of God. And it, and it could not be just anyone that was sacrificed. It had to be, it had to be one who is also completely unblemished. There's no other way to be called a son of God. And so just thinking real, really briefly about the way in which Christ is the firstborn and the way in which Christ is unblemished. Think of, think of how amazing it is that the way in which this was fulfilled. Christ was not the one who was designated the firstborn by adoption. He's not the firstborn of an animal. He's not even the firstborn of a human. He is the firstborn of God himself, begotten of God before all ages. He is, a, he, he is that kind of firstborn. In, in all Old Testament sacrifice, the thing sacrificed was of lesser value than the one for whom it was sacrificed. The animals are not as valuable as the humans who receive the benefit from the sacrifice. But here, in the definitive act of redemption that God would provide, it's not a firstborn taken by the people, but a, the firstborn of God himself sent by the Father to redeem all of his people. Now, there's there's no greater act of love that could, it could be possible to even conceive of. Uh, to give a firstborn of an animal is something quite different from giving your own firstborn even. But God, God himself provided the firstborn such that then those who are quite lowly creatures. We are uh, infinitely uh, set apart from God in terms of the creator-creature distinction, and yet God did this so that we could be called the sons of God. And just as the author to the Hebrews writes, because this sacrifice is so great, because it's not just the, the firstborn of an animal, but it's the firstborn of God himself, once this happens one time, it's sufficient for all eternity. Uh, in the Old Testament, this, this, uh, this, Old Test this uh, firstborn law had to be repeated each year, because it was ultimately pointing to something greater. And the fact that it had to be repeated proved that it was not granting full firstborn status in a definitive way. It, it, it couldn't be, because if it did, then there'd be no reason for the sacrifice to continue. And yet, there would be coming a time, and that, a time that actually came, when Christ himself, as the true firstborn of God, was sacrificed, where he definitively gave the firstborn status to the people of God. He is the firstborn son of God. And you could not be saved without the, this kind of firstborn sacrifice. Now we also see that Christ is the unblemished lamb before God. He is the spotless lamb. As remember John the Baptist, as he, he testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now in the Old Testament, the requirement was that the animal not have any defect, that it be whole and complete. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just that he is complete in that way, but he is the one who is perfect in holiness, who radiates even the, the holiness of his father as he is perfectly holy even from all eternity. And in that sense, he is perfectly spotless and blameless, uh, not just in the sense of him being whole, but even in the sense of him being completely sinless. He was the perfect sacrifice given for the sake of of his people. And then just like in the firstborn laws, there was a connection between 
Israel becoming the firstborn sons of God and the sacrifice of a firstborn, so too we see the exact same thing with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That it is it is through the, the one who was born under the law, who was born of woman, who uh, has redeemed us from the law, that we might become the sons of God, that we might receive the adoption as sons from him. All of this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You cannot be a firstborn son of God without this particular sacrifice. And not only that then, not only does then Christ as the fulfillment of these firstborn laws grant to you the status of, of being a firstborn yourself, this also means then, and the reason why I've been using the language of firstborn is because it's not just that you have been granted status as being a part of the family of God, such that now you are a son or daughter of God. Now, that's true. But the point is that you have firstborn status, that you actually have the right of the heir. You, you get the choice inheritance in the family, and everyone gets it. That's, that's the amazing thing. That would be something if you were brought into the family of God, and yet Christ still received uh, the, the great portion of the inheritance. That would be, that'd be a right and a, a good thing. No one ought to complain about that. That we get brought in, we get to be adopted as sons. Christ remains the firstborn and he gets all the glory. Now, there's always a sense in which he gets all the glory in ways that we do not. But think of the grace of the scriptures that the thing that you receive is not just entrance into the family, but you receive the right of the firstborn, whereby you get the inheritance. Think of the way Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things. Where Paul is actually saying that you, because you are in Christ and have been granted this firstborn status, that you are a co-heir with Christ, as he says earlier in, in, in Romans chapter 8. You receive the same inheritance as Christ in this way. Now again, there's there's always some distinctions. Christ receives divine worship. We will never deceive or receive divine worship. And yet, you have the inheritance of the firstborn of God, such that it can rightfully be said that the entire cosmos is your inheritance. That's what's been granted to you, as is rightfully going to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it is, is going to be yours in that regard. And not only just any cosmos, you know, you could even say like, well, this cosmos is falling apart, and it is. But the, the cosmos, as it is consummated and perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the heir of all things because you have been granted the firstborn status by this perfect sacrifice of the firstborn from God. How will God, having given Christ for us, not along with Christ, graciously give us all things, every single thing in this world? Now, ju just think about how amazing this is. If you, you find yourself to be a sinner. You find yourself to be a sinner. And you think, you know, there's nothing that I could have done. There's nothing that I could do to, in any way, merit any kind of grace before God. And yet God forgives you of your sins. If that were, were all that he did, that would be quite amazing. You will not be punished for all the terrible things that you've done against God, all the rebellion and acts of wickedness, all the thoughts and intentions of your heart and everything that you've outwardly done. You won't be penalized for that. You'll be forgiven of those sins. God goes further and then declares you righteous. And he gives to you the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that were all that you were given, of course, not only are you forgiven, but you're also counted as righteous such that you now have a right to a reward from God. It's quite an amazing thing, even though you are a sinner. God goes further then and brings you into his family, such that now you have a privileged access where you can call God your father, 
God is now your father and you have this great and wonderful relationship established only on the basis of grace. Even though you were a sinner, you didn't deserve the, the, the forgiveness of sins. You certainly didn't deserve the righteousness. You also didn't deserve being brought into the family. And then we're told even further that you now have the right of the firstborn and have an inheritance, which is the same as Christ. It is grace upon grace and beyond anything that could possibly even be comprehensible if it were not written in the scriptures. There'd be no way that someone could arrogantly say that, that this would be what God would actually give to them unless it were in fact written in the scriptures that we knew for a fact that God was giving this to us. It is incomprehensibly great grace. Incomprehensibly great grace. And then not only that, but just as with the law of the firstborn, it has a relationship in Deuteronomy to communion with God. There's the, the place in which God sets his name to dwell, and we have fellowship with God there. So too, the same thing is true with the sacrifice of the firstborn in the New Testament, the fulfillment of all these things, that through that we have been granted access to the Father. As it says in Romans chapter 5, you have fellowship with God. Or think of the, the very poetic and wonderful way in which the authors of the Hebrews write it in, in Hebrews 13.10, where he, he is trying to, to show the, the, the people how foolish it is to go back to these Old Testament ways. And he says to them, we have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You have an access and a, a way to have fellowship with God in feasting. Just as the Levites and priests did in the Old Testament. But it's far greater because yours is actually in the presence of the triune God in a way that could be described as being in the Holy of Holies itself. And those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to come anywhere near it. They have no right to come anywhere near it because your fellowship with God is based upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this fellowship is by faith. It's by faith. Now, it's important to, to say because, uh, you know, uh, Roman Catholics will argue that that uh, this is, would be ultimately fulfilled with the partaking of the Lord's Supper, which there is a relationship to the Lord's Supper. We don't want to deny that. Uh, but it's not by eating a sacrifice that's been sacrificed through transubstantiation where uh, the, the bread and the wine actually become Christ's body and blood. We see this very clearly in John chapter 6, which is often used by Roman Catholics to speak of the Lord's Supper. And I do think it is related to the Lord's Supper in, in an indirect way. But notice in that, in that chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ says, for, particularly in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. So it's coming to Christ which is then explained in the very next phrase, in the very next clause, where it says, he who believes in me will never thirst. So the way in which you then can fulfill everything that's spoken of here in the firstborn law, such that you have this access to God, this communion with him, this right of being a firstborn in, his, uh, in the family of God is by faith, is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing we see in verse 40 of the same chapter. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. Who believes in the son will have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, it's not to say that there's no relationship to the supper. We do partake of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the supper. We do have spiritual fellowship with him such that it does in some, in some sense benefit us now and itself point forward to a greater consummation on the last day. It is related, but ultimately, ultimately, the only way that you can benefit from the law of the firstborn and the sacrifice of the firstborn is by faith. The only way you have any benefit is by faith itself. And brothers and sisters, think about how, how marvelous this is then. 
as we think about even the way in which this is related to the place that God chooses, every single Lord's Day, this is what you celebrate. When we gather, this is the place that God has chosen to set his name. And this law of the firstborn has been so perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This becomes the foundation for what we do on Sunday. This is the thing that we celebrate. This is the fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important to remember because remember, this is, in Deuteronomy 15, an exposition of the fourth commandment. It teaches us what it means to worship God on the day that he set apart for the worship of his name. Everything was meant to to teach us about the worship that we would have. And even then, this worship, even as everything in Old Testament worship pointed back to the Exodus and forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, so too in New Testament worship, everything points back to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and also forward further still to the consummation of all things when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven. And that's what we see as well. The inheritance that is yours as a firstborn you have not yet received. You've not yet received it. It's still coming for you. You've not received the cosmos uh, as uh, the inheritance, as you will, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with God, and yet there is still a sense in which we await the return of the bridegroom, in which he is separated from us now. We're told he is with us always to the end of the age, and he is by his spirit. He's poured out his spirit upon us, and yet there is still something that's lacking. There's still something that we do not have yet, that we have not attained. We eat before God in his presence, in the place which he has chosen to set his name. And yet there's also a sense in which this feast that we have with God is a pointer to a greater feast that we've yet to experience ourselves. There is a sense in which in which we have this, these things, and yet we are still going to die. And as those who die, we are awaiting the fullness of life that is a part of our inheritance. There's a wonderful passage in Isaiah 25. I've mentioned it a a number of times. Such a wonderful thing just to think on, though, where there is this prophecy of what is coming on the last day, and it points to these very things, the fellowship that we will have with God on the very last day. And it says this, "In in this mountain, remember the mountain of God is always the place where God meets with his people. Now Isaiah is talking about and the, the, in the end of time, the very last mountain of God, the one where God is with his people forever. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Everything in Old Testament law was pointing to this, this idea. There was a feast that was coming. And then he says, he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering and cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Everything in the Old Testament worship pointed to this reality and everything in our worship points to the exact same reality. What you have on the Lord's Day is a foretaste of this worship. It's a, it's a foretaste of this feast. You have fellowship with God as you eat in his presence, as you partake of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in the supper and even as you believe in him through the preaching of the word. All of it, all of it is to teach you to long in your heart for the day when these things would happen, when God would bring you to his holy mountain and when he will destroy that covering over all people's death itself, when it's swallowed up in victory and he wipes away every tear from every eye. All of worship points to this. Now, brothers and sisters, consider again, as I mentioned, 
Everything in Old Testament worship, everything was meant to remind the people of God of the Passover. Every single thing, uh, the Passover and the Exodus, everything was geared towards that. We, are, though, are living in the times that the prophets spoke of when they promised that there would be a time when we would actually forget the Exodus because there would be some event of redemption that would be far greater. And this would become the new controlling event that would govern everything that we do as Christians, everything that we do as the people of God, all the worship that we give to God, even as the Exodus governed all of the worship in the Old Testament, so too this greater act of redemption would govern all the worship that we do once the greater act is accomplished. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the perfect fulfillment of all these things. And the reason why there are so many of these laws in the Old Testament is because all of them point to a different part of the wonderful, perfect, and incomprehensibly great work that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. May it be, may it be that God would so stir our hearts that as we even think about the privilege that we have of worshiping him on the Lord's day, that our hearts would melt and that we would come into his presence with joy every single week and give to him, strive to give to him the worship that is due to his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for these truths, Lord, that, that all these things that are ours is, is simply amazing. Lord, if, if a tenth of it were true, you would deserve all of the praise of all time from all of your people, from the moment of their birth even into all eternity. Lord, how much more that all of it is true. It is such an amazing thing. Lord, even as we think of its incomprehensibility, we rightfully should ought to pray the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, that we would be given the strength to comprehend the depths of this love that's been shown to us. Lord, would you give us the strength to comprehend the depths? What's the height, the width, the length, and the depth of this love which you've shown to us, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would understand this love, and in so doing, that we would be transformed as we behold the glory of your Son. And in so beholding it, and in so being transformed, that you yourself would receive glory, that you would receive the glory that is due to your name for all that you've done. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.